If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hello and welcome to Life of the Week, where leading historians delve into the lives of some of history's most intriguing and significant figures. From ancient Egyptian pharaohs and medieval warriors to daring 20th century spies. Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, has gone down in history as one of Britain's most formidable military commanders. But how did he earn such an impressive reputation? For today's Life of the Week episode, I spoke to Dr Zach White to find out. Me and Zach spoke more about Wellington's successes on the battlefield, as well as his controversial tenure as a politician and his salacious personal life. So hi Zach, thank you so much for joining me for this Life of the Week episode on Arthur Wellesley, who I think listeners probably will actually know as the Duke of Wellington. So to start us off, can you give us a very brief primer on what's in store for listeners today? Why has the Duke of Wellington gone down in history? Sure. Hi, Arely. Well, thanks for, for having me on again. It's nice to be back, becoming a bit of a regular for you guys on sort of Napoleonic nerdery, which I'm, <laughs> I'm absolutely down for. So yeah, Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, probably one of the foremost soldiers, politicians and diplomats of the first half of the 19th century. He made a name for himself during the Napoleonic Wars. He was second only to Napoleon in his military skill. And he was an internationally revered figure, both as a general and as a statesman. One historian has described him as one of sort of the whisperers behind the thrones of Europe. And the reason for that is that sending Wellington on a diplomatic mission was a statement of intent. He was described by some as the liberator of Europe and as one of the victors of the Battle of Waterloo. He was a household name across the continent. He was the Montgomery and the Churchill of his age. But Wellington was also a controversial figure. He was an arch-conservative who opposed electoral reform of the Rotten Borough system and the expansion of the suffrage from the very limited wealthy elite who were allowed to vote in Britain at that time. He consistently argued against reforms to the flogging of the very soldiers who had fought so hard for him. And his resistance to wider army reforms were part of the reason 
that the British faced such significant issues during the Crimean War. He is ultimately, like many figures from this period of history, impressive in his achievements, yet problematic in some of his views. Thank you for that great introduction. And before we kind of launch into that life story in more depth, I just want to touch on something that I think can sometimes get lost when you're running through the key points of someone's life, which is what was he like as a person? Yeah, I always love these kinds of questions because for me, it's the nitty gritty of what makes the person and the way the person responds to the scenarios that actually is what's fascinating about history rather than, oh, he won this battle and and X thousand men were under his command and all the rest of it. And I often say that whilst Wellington would make a fascinating dinner party guest, he isn't someone that I'd want to go drinking with. And I think that's a really kind of nice way of thinking about the distinctions between the guy, because he was an unashamed snob. And in that sense, he reflects the values of his day. He was an aristocrat, and it said that he liked competent people, but preferred talent with a title to talent alone. In other words, if you were the heir to a particular estate and you demonstrated competence, you were more likely to get Wellington's support in being pushed up that ladder and gaining his patronage, which was so key during this period in terms of shimmying your way up that slippery pole of advancement. And if you didn't, then sure, he'd help you out and he'd respect you, but he wouldn't give you the same level of favour. Now, he could be warm and charming. He was highly intelligent, hugely skilled at the art of diplomacy, when he felt that there was a need to. He had incredible vision and focus and an astonishing work ethic. He was one of the ultimate overachievers of his period. And he had the ability to keep multiple ideas and plates spinning at the same time. In one moment, he could be writing a letter to an Allied general discussing strategy and then set that aside and dictate an order on the amount of corn that needs to go in a horse's feed because he was that much of a micromanager that he would tell somebody how many handfuls of grain needed to be in a particular mixture. It was insane. And then having done that, he'd turn around and lobby the British government for something like reinforcement. But for all those attributes that we can praise, he also had plenty of flaws. He was a hugely arrogant man, perhaps unsurprisingly, given the scale of his success. He once spoke about how he had felt the finger of providence had been placed upon him. He was prejudiced, we've touched on that, a staunch believer in the ancien regime order, the idea that people are born to a particular place in society and those at the top are born to lead and that status quo should not be upset. And that's probably something that was reinforced by the turmoil of the French Revolution. Looking at what had happened in France, seeing that instability would have just kind of reasserted that that kind of conviction within him. He could be very cold and cutting. He had a huge kind of sarcastic streak to him, particularly when somebody had displeased him. There are lots of very amusing anecdotes of, of a truly washbish tone in his, his manner. There's, there's one instance, for example, during his time out in Spain, where some of his junior officers are writing back to the papers in the UK, complaining and, and offering their opinions on how the campaign should be fought. And in classic Wellingtonian fashion, He issues this order requesting that the officers don't express views on matters which they can have no set opinion since they lack the relevant information. And it's that kind of really cutting element of his personality that makes for good reading, but does also mean that you know if you were going to irritate this guy, he was not going to be 
backwards in coming forwards, but he was also generous, supporting veterans post-war, had a fierce sense of duty as well, which is partly why Queen Victoria loved him, as if he was some sort of favourite uncle. So somebody to keep on the good side of, it sounds like. So in our whistle-stop tour of Wellington's life, let's start at the very beginning. What do we know about his early life? I'm guessing from what you said there about him being a big snob, that he wasn't born at the very bottom of the rung. He wasn't. You know, he didn't kind of live in a hovel in the early years of his life, put it that way. Part of the problem with Wellington's life is that most of what we think we know about him is actually apocryphal. So, for example, a lot of your listeners are probably thinking, oh, I know that Wellington burnt his violin. He almost certainly didn't. He was born into aristocracy, but part of the reason that he had a little bit of a chip on his shoulder in the early phase of his life was that he was born into Irish aristocracy, so Anglo-Irish Protestant aristocracy. And in the sort of snobbish hierarchy within Britain at this time, if you were an Irish aristocrat, you were of lesser status than if you were I don't know, the holder of an estate in Berkshire or something. He was also a second son, so he wasn't destined to inherit the family title. And this is why he is the first Duke of Wellington. He doesn't inherit that title. He earns it for himself because he has no other choice. And his mother did worry about what he would do with his life. Second sons had a very sort of unstable, uncertain existence. Quite often they either had to go into the Navy or the Army or government, and ultimately Wellington ends up doing two of those things. He didn't excel at Eton, which is where he was sent, so that kind of gives you an indication of how they tried to bring this guy up. Ultimately, he was sent to an academy in Angers in France to learn things like horse riding and etiquette and a little bit about army life, and that was quite transformative to him. Now, he did also have kind of a leg up of sorts in that because he decided to go into the army, The way in which army promotions worked during this period is that you could get promoted through competence, but the fastest way to get ahead was to buy your rank. You could exchange and sell your commission. And he was able to exploit that system, like so many during his age. And in fact, Wellington is the exception to the rule on this, in that he was able to rapidly buy his way up, but also had competence Whereas quite often, your ability to buy your way up the rank could be detrimental because you could be an absolute imbecile when it came to the art of warfare and yet still find yourself as a lieutenant colonel within a a few years. So he has a leg up of sorts, but there's not a sense that he is destined for greatness. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging 
so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So, spoiler alert, it would turn out that he was not an imbecile in military matters. He joined the army in 1787. Can you give us a sense of some of the early conflicts he was involved with and how they might have shaped his approach to, to warfare? Absolutely. So... The first major campaign that he's involved in is to the Low Countries. Now, by that point, this is in the 1790s, Britain is at war with French Revolutionary government. Wellington, by this point, is the commander of a regiment, the 33rd Regiment, and he fought well, he demonstrated ability, but by that point, he's more of an observer. You know, he's not senior enough to influence the campaign as he would go on to do. And what he'd seen in many respects, is a textbook example of how an army falls apart if it isn't supplied properly. The campaign is an absolute disaster. It's led by the then commander-in-chief, the Duke of York. And there are caricatures actually produced back in Britain during this period of the Duke of York kind of living it up and partying whilst outside his troops are emaciated from lack of food supplies. And I think that instilled this kind of fanatical fixation about keeping his troops well-equipped and as well fed as circumstances allowed. And the next major campaign that he's involved in is India, and that's where he really cut his teeth as a commander. He's out there by the late 1790s, and it's fair to say that he was helped a lot by the fact that his brother, his elder brother Richard, who is the one who is destined to inherit the family estates, Richard is the Earl of Mornington, Richard is sent out there as governor around the same time, and that allowed Richard to shape policy on the subcontinent, whilst his brother Arthur, our Wellington, as he will become, is the one who shapes the strategy. Now, Richard was an unashamed imperialist. He used a series of pretexts, kind of prod the local Indian princes into war, and it was a war in which his brother shined. During the Second Anglo-Maratha War of 1803-5, it's Arthur who led the British and East India Company forces in a series of reasonably impressive victories over much larger Maratha armies. So you're talking about battles like Assay, Agwam, Gawalgur. And his success helped to tip the balance of power in Britain's favour on the subcontinent, quite emphatically. And he left a rich man and a knight of the bar. So he did very well out of this war. But more than anything else, the experience of fighting in India particularly reinforced the importance of keeping his men well supplied, even relatively small armies like the ones that he commanded in India, required these huge support networks. But without it, an army would starve, particularly in a place like India where supplies were a constant source of concern at times. It did have a drawback for him, and that was his approach to sieges. And I think the fortresses in India weren't on the same scale or as complex in terms of engineering as the ones that he would face later on in Europe. And Wellington himself acknowledged that at times he would flick into a sort of India mode, and I think that arguably explains why sieges were the most significant chink in his armour as a commander. So as you say, 
Wellington then took some of these lessons and applied some perhaps better than others forward into the Napoleonic Wars. He spent several years in those conflicts and there's too much, I think, to cover everything here in a lot of detail. But are there any particularly notable moments that you would highlight there? Yeah, so Arthur won a a string of battles against the French in what became known as the Peninsular War, a really, frankly, unnecessary concept. In 1807, Napoleon occupied Portugal as basically a punishment for them to choosing to trade with the UK. And then in 1808, he stabbed his ally Spain in the back by toppling the Spanish monarchy and placing his own brother on the Spanish throne in a series of moves that sounds more like the plot of a mafia crime thriller than what you'd expect from history. And Britain sent out what was initially a very small force to Portugal under Wellesley's command, as he still was back then in 1808. And I think the speed with which he is able to start transforming the situation in Portugal is what really makes him a household name. Before that point, sure, people might have vaguely heard something in the newspapers about an Arthur Wellesley who'd, who'd won some battles in India, but he wins two victories over the French in the space of a month at the battles of Relicia and Vermeiro, and basically that forces the French to give up Portugal. That was electrifying. The French were the undisputed military might of Europe during this time. Their armies had repeatedly humbled the other great European nations. Austria, Prussia, Russia had all been shattered in the face of the might of the French army. Napoleon's military machine was regarded as almost unbeatable. So British success under Wellesley was making everybody sit up and pay attention like startled meerkats, wondering where the hell this had come from. But there was a a problem with all of this that nearly ruined Wellesley because he was superseded in the moment of victory at Vermeiro and was forbidden from pressing the advantage of his victory by his successor and was ordered to sign a very controversial compromise pact with the commander of the French forces known as the Convention of Sintra. And what this basically agreed was that if the French left Portugal, they would be sent back on British ships and be allowed to take all of their belongings. There were two problems with this. Firstly, it rendered the Royal Navy the equivalent of a taxi service for the French army, which didn't go down particularly well. And the French interpreted the you can take your belongings with you as any loot that you've picked up, consider it yours, which, as you can imagine, caused a lot of controversy, both in the UK and in Portugal, over what the hell the British were doing in terms of protecting the rights of these Portuguese citizens that they've been sent out to support. So it caused a huge stink in the British press. There was a public inquiry and Wellesley actually had to go home to defend his reputation, which he did and was fully acquitted from any wrongdoing. But why do I kind of go off on this sort of long tangent about the Convention of Sintra? Well, in his absence, the British campaign in the Iberian Peninsula catastrophically fell apart, leading to a disastrous retreat across the Galathean Mountains in the depths of the winter of 1808-9, with thousands dying in the freezing conditions. So in 1809, he's sent back out and again starts working wonders. Within six weeks, he's liberated Portugal for a second time. The French had reinvaded earlier that year. He stays out there, as you say, until Napoleon's first abdication in 1814, by which point he'd fought his way across Spain, fended off a third invasion of Portugal and been the first of Napoleon's enemies to invade France. But it was a very slow process. By 1812, he had maybe 55,000 men under his command, including a large Portuguese contingent, where the Portuguese army had been entirely retrained and equipped in the British model 
using British officers and money, and in some cases equipment, all of which was Wellesley's idea. But the French, by contrast, had a quarter of a million men spread across Spain. And in some respects, the biggest contribution that the Anglo-Portuguese army under Wellesley's command makes is this unbroken string of victories over the French, which has this kind of electrifying propaganda benefit. Because whilst Napoleon might be winning battles at the other end of the continent, it is very clear that the French are not winning the Peninsula War, which means that they can be beaten. And in 1814, Wellesley was made the Duke of Wellington. Was that in response to any particular achievement? And how significant was it for his status in public life? Yeah, so the Duke of Wellington bit is sort of the the last section of, of the story of his advancement. So he became Wellington after the Battle of Talavera in 1809. Initially, he's made Viscount and then is elevated to Earl following subsequent victories and collects a number of other titles as well, actually, from other European nations. So he's a Prince of Waterloo by the end of his career. He's a Duke of Theodad Rodrigo. He's also got the title of Lord Duro, which is a river in Spain and Portugal. So he collects these trinkets, if you like, almost like they're something like Smarties. It's insane. But it's a, a mark of his success, actually, that so many other nations want to honour this guy. He wasn't already a household name by that point. I would say it's in 1812 at the Battle of Salamanca, that he experiences something of a breakthrough moment, not just for him personally in terms of his reputation, but also in terms of the context of the Peninsula War. But having said that, the Russians were paying attention to him well before that point. An example of this is that they mirrored the scorched earth policy that Wellesley used to defeat the third French invasion of Portugal in 1810. And that idea of actually just pulling back in the face of an advancing force gutting the countryside of all of its resources was something that, of course, the Russians very famously implemented against Napoleon's disastrous invasion of Russia in 1812. And I think a a moment from the Napoleonic Wars that we obviously have to touch on is the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, of course. What was Wellington's role that day? How long have you got? Can we not do an entire podcast just on that? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so... To set things in a little bit of context for folks, I mentioned Napoleon's first abdication is in 1814. He's exiled to Elba, but then comes back, is the the ultra-potted version, in 1815. That leads to what will become the Waterloo campaign, because the other nations of Europe look at this return of Napoleon and think, hang on, we we spent years getting rid of this guy. We're not happy to just let him return to France and, and build up his power base and then come after us all over again. Even though Napoleon claims that he doesn't want war when he comes back. He's quite right. He doesn't want war because he's not ready for it. He's playing a, a very savvy game. But the other Allied powers can see through that. They're not having it. And so this massive coalition forms against Napoleon for what will become the final time. Napoleon knows that the Russians, the Austrians, and the Prussians are all coming. And so he strikes basically at the nearest force that he can, thinking that he can take a couple of armies off the table, you know, instill a bit of fear in the coalition, maybe start to destabilise it with this sort of big crushing victory. And that's what leads to the Waterloo campaign, because that nearest force is actually two armies, an Anglo Dutch force under the command of Wellington and a Prussian army under the command of Marshal Blücher. So 
what is often spun in the way that people tell Waterloo is, oh, the British win the Battle of Waterloo, and they're under the command of a British general, which is a lovely little narrative if you're British, but completely ignores the fact that you've got a huge Dutch contingent, a huge German contingent, even within Wellington's force, and completely sidelines this entire Prussian army because, hey, let's just focus on the British story for British propaganda purposes. That's not to say that Wellington doesn't play a really key role within the context of all of this. By this point, he is widely recognised as probably the best commander that the Allies have to field against Napoleon. And and this is even recognised by the troops to the point that when the announcement comes through that Wellington is going to command this British-Dutch force out in Belgium, the troops themselves cheer this announcement because they have this innate belief. There's a a famous comment that they would rather see his long nose in a fight than a reinforcement of 10,000 men any day. And that gives you the sense of sort of moral ascendancy that Wellington has, not just over the French, but particularly amongst the troops. And part of that is his style, this inclination to put himself in the thick of the action. He is a commander who leads from the front. The troops during this period talk about a distinction between the come-on commanders and the go-on commanders. And Wellington sits right at the cusp of the two because he can't be that guy who is literally 10 feet in front of his men in a hail of musket fire saying, come on, boys, let's go. But nonetheless, he puts himself in the thick of the fighting wherever the place of greatest danger is. Partly that's because he's an appalling micromanager and doesn't trust anybody else to get the job done. But also it's an awareness of his own ability and the inspirational effect that he has as a commander. So Wellington is not a man who is loved by his troops because he has this kind of aloof, cold demeanour. He's not somebody like Napoleon who kind of gets literally personal with his men and sort of tugs earlobes. That's not Wellington's way. Wellington will sort of tip a hat at somebody and sort of you know tell you to carry on, there's a good chap sort of thing. He, he's much more that kind of style. But the fact that he's willing to share those dangers and make sure that he is in the place where he needs to be is something that is hugely respected by the troops because it sends this powerful message. And Wellington knew this as well. He said that the troops will do for me perhaps what no one else can make them do because of that awareness that this almost kind of potent combination that the British rank and file absolutely back themselves in a fight. They have this xenophobic, hugely kind of almost hyper-nationalistic self-belief in an era where nationalism doesn't even exist. And then if you add Wellington, who by this point has this string of victories against many of Napoleon's top generals to his name, you have this sense amongst the British that they are absolutely unbeatable. We've got Old Nosy, as they called him, behind us. He's the one who's going to send all the runners and riders and make sure the reinforcements and all the rest of it are in place. And all we've got to do is our jobs. And we do that well because we're British and we've beaten the French on many occasions already. That's the kind of mentality that is at play at Waterloo. And he absolutely exploits that to the hilt, making sure that he is riding between different units, giving them the encouragement, making them aware that they need to keep fighting. Because look, I'm here and I'm only in the places where it really matters. So make sure you do your duty. So Wellington was clearly this really influential figurehead. And you mentioned earlier how he was very aware of the need to keep his armies well supplied. But how was he generally as a tactician? I'm imagining pretty good since he had this amazing record of victories. Yeah, Wellington is somebody who 
is very frugal with his men's lives. This is a guy who is aware of Britain's fundamental problem that it dislikes large standing armies. And that's something that goes all the way back to the English Civil War. But what it means is that Britain's army is always very small. And he's constantly appealing for more men because with more men, he can do more. Think about what I said about the situation in Spain. A quarter of a million French soldiers on the Iberian Peninsula compared to his army of, you know, sort of 55,000. He's having to pick and choose where he fights. And what that means is he can't afford to squander an advantage. He can't fight Napoleon-style battles. Napoleon, with this mass conscription drive that he is able to inherit from the French Revolution, is able to just hurl men at situations. Think about the army that he leads into Russia. Half a million men go into Russia in the summer of 1812. These are huge forces. Britain doesn't have that. We'll never have that. And at one point in 1810, he... Wellington actually explains this in his own words, and he looks at a particular strategic situation and he goes, I could lick those men, i.e. hammer the French, but it would cost me 10,000 men. And this is the last army that Britain has. We must preserve it. And I think there's an awareness of that actually amongst the British rank and file as well. And what it means is that Wellington picks his battles very carefully. It doesn't mean that he's overly cautious. The Battle of Salamanca is partly so transformative because he is able to strike like a viper when his opponent, Marshal Marmont, makes a small error, a very small mistake. A couple of units become too isolated and he rips apart the French army in a devastatingly successful afternoon's attack. So Wellington is one of these people who is able to look for the weak points, look for the chinks in his opponent's armour and exploit those to the hilt. But he's also somebody who has an idea of the macro. He's an exceptional intelligence gatherer, really makes the most of the huge discontent across Spain at what Napoleon has done during the Peninsula War with this large-scale insurrection known as the guerrilla war. It's where we actually get the term guerrilla warfare from. It's a Spanish term, guerrilla, the small war. And he is able to exploit the fact that a lot of bandit groups across Spain are in arms against the French and are willing to attack French messengers and then feed those messages straight back to him. So he's able to kind of think about all of the bigger picture, but not just within the context of what he wants to do, but what else does he need to do to keep those quarter of a million men occupied in Spain. In 1812, he organises a series of smaller campaigns, which he's only able to do because he can see the ultimate bigger picture, which is where this conflict sits within the context of war across Europe. And to do that, he needs to talk to the government. And so you have this constant stream of communications where he's lobbying at sometimes even screaming, literally screaming in, in terms of the tone of his letters at the British government saying, I need this. You cannot make that decision. So, for example, when war kicks off with the USA, in 1812, in the War of 1812, he's sort of writing these letters saying, have you thought about what this is going to do to the grain situation? And you think, well, why does he care about the grain situation? But he's thinking about supply. He knows that Britain needs the US grain market to be open in order to be able to feed his army. And it's that sense of being able to see all the different dynamics that makes him, frankly, second only to Napoleon in terms of his vision as a strategist. Of course, we ultimately see the victory of Britain and its allies at Waterloo and then in the Napoleonic Wars overall. How much can that victory be credited 
to Wellington? It's a half and half situation, I think. And that's something that a lot of listeners, I think, will find controversial. When it comes to Waterloo, you have to remember that the Prussian army is integral. I think a lot of people misunderstand Waterloo in a couple of contexts. One is that they think that it's an example of Wellington only being able to fight a defensive battle. That's not the case. But if you look at his record, he has more offensive victories than defensive. So it's one of those myths that has come through because everybody thinks about Waterloo when they think about Wellington. But the other thing that people miss is this idea that Wellington was somehow saved by the Prussian arrival at Waterloo, which completely misses the point that there is a strategy between these two armies. They're not just sort of casually wandering around the Belgian countryside and sort of stumble into one another on the 18th of June, 1815. What happens before the campaign even starts is that Blücher and Wellington have a sit down and decide the best way to defeat this guy is to fight combined, like a sort of 19th century NATO. And if you take that kind of coalition mindset, you start to understand much better that it was always going to be the case that either Wellington was going to support Blücher or Blücher was going to support Wellington. One of them was going to stand and hold off Napoleon just long enough for the other force to come in on the flank and roll up the French position. And so on the 18th of June, in the small hours before the guns even start firing, the only reason Wellington commits to standing and fighting at Waterloo is because he gets a letter from Blücher with an absolute cast-iron commitment. I will send at least a quarter of my army to back you. And so that turns Waterloo for Wellington into a holding action. Just hold the line, fend off the French for long enough, and the Prussians are coming. And in the end, they send three quarters of their army. I think in some respects, uh, and this is a point that I've made a few times in the past, Waterloo is not quite all it's cracked up to be in the sense that, it, sure, it was Napoleon's last defeat, but that defeat was coming anyway. The, the Austrians, the Prussians, the Russians, they are all on their way. And according to certain estimates, you're talking sort of three quarters of a million men are massing against France. Napoleon can't fend off those kinds of numbers. So there would have been a point at which Napoleon would have been defeated for the final time. But what matters to history is that the British were integral to that final defeat and could use that to their advantage in terms of the reputation and propaganda for the next century. Because the Peninsula War, ultimately, for all that Wellington is integral to it, it is not what wins the Napoleonic Wars. It was a sideshow. Think about the numbers. I'm talking about a quarter of a million men in Spain for the French, and yet Napoleon is still able to summon half a million men in 1812 to take into Russia. And it is in Russia in 1812, and particularly in Germany at the Battle of the Nations in 1813, that the back of French dominance over the continent is broken. The Peninsula War drains Napoleon's resources, for sure, and he desperately needs them. It had that propaganda impact that we've talked about already. But for obvious reasons, we Brits are kind of guilty of overplaying the impact that that conflict had on the wider situation in Europe and around the world. Great. Now, Zach, I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball at you after all of that military matters. Is there anything important we should know about Wellington's personal life during all of this? Did he even have much of a personal life when he was, you know, out and about across Europe and the world fighting these campaigns? Whilst he was on campaign, he didn't do much in terms of sort of personal life matters. But Wellington's personal life is a, a whole podcast series in and of itself. The thing with Wellington was that he was as you've probably picked up already, a man who could devote himself to his work. And that had a majorly detrimental impact 
on his marriage. He was an awful husband, truly awful. He married Kitty Pakenham out of duty, ultimately. He had initially proposed to her before he went out to India, out of genuine affection. And that proposal had been rejected by Kitty's father, because at that point, Wellington isn't Wellington. He doesn't have a knighthood. He's an officer in a unit that people haven't really heard of. He's a nobody. And so Kitty's father isn't confident that Wellesley is a a suitable match. Of course, by the time he comes back from India, it's a very different story. You know, this guy, by this point, is a major general. He's been knighted. He is a somebody within the context of society. But Kitty hadn't held a flame for Arthur whilst he'd been away in India. She'd actually been engaged and that betrothal had broken down for various reasons. And it was only the very unhelpful input of a mutual friend sort of trying to play Cupid that put the two of them back together. And effectively, Wellesley, as he was at that point in time, married because he had promised Kitty that he would come back, having proven himself, and propose again, and was told, actually, no, Kitty's been waiting for you. You made that promise. But here's a comment that doesn't reflect well on him. When he saw Kitty having come back from India, and bear in mind that Kitty had been seriously ill and that had affected her health quite majorly, His only comment was, hasn't she grown plain? And the problem was was simple within the context of their marriage. Kitty idolised Arthur, and that was precisely what he didn't want and didn't need. He wanted somebody who was his intellectual and social equal, a sparring partner, somebody who, in kind of modern terms, would perhaps banter with him and kind of perhaps occasionally bring him down a peg or two in private, but also could play the game when they're in the social circles. He loved the company of highly intelligent women who could push him, who could argue with him, debate with him. And that ultimately, sadly, wasn't Kitty. It didn't help that he was away for much of the early years of their marriage. The news that was coming back led to the country putting him on a pedestal, right? You know, he's in Spain and Portugal, he's winning all of these victories. He is, to the British people as a whole, a hero. He's a source of great news that is being splashed across the papers and celebrated. He's getting all of these acclaims and votes of thanks from Parliament and all the rest of it. And Kitty revels in that. She does the same in terms of sticking Wellington up there on a almost like a Pantheon-esque figure, almost a god. And he, she passes that on to the kids as well, who don't see their father for the first six years of their lives. She also struggled with finances at times, which angered him. There's a a story that apparently she incurred some debts and wasn't able to pay the guy who delivered milk to the family estate. And Wellington got quite cross and paid off the debt, you know, in a heartbeat, but sort of turned around and said, I won't have it said that the Duke of Wellington cannot pay for his milk. Uh, Again, that sort of cutting, slightly bizarre line that you sort of go, come on, mate, chill out a little bit. But again, this is the distinction of period and all the rest of it. But the big problem I think, is that he cheated repeatedly and publicly to the point where it was a running joke in the British caricatures that he was sleeping around. Now, sure, that wasn't out of character for this period. Many men had very public affairs. Napoleon had a string of mistresses. It was very much seen as, in commas, the norm. But it was hugely painful for Kitty, as it is for any spouse, to find that their, their partner is, is cheating on them. And this was something that was played out in public one cartoon actually depicted Wellington astride a cannon. I think people can probably work out what the metaphor is there. 
and the onlookers in this caricature are commenting that the cannon has been worn out because it's been fired too much, which gives you an indication of just how prolific uh, an adulterer he was. And there is a very famous comment, publish and be damned, where one of his mistresses threatened to reveal all about the, the details of their relationship to the papers and tried to blackmail Wellington. And Wellington's response was characteristically uncompromising, publish and be damned. And she did. And she was. So we've touched on his controversial personal life. Of course, we've covered his military endeavours. But one area that we haven't talked about yet is Wellington's political career. So in between these military endeavours, he, he dabbled in politics. But after the Napoleonic Wars, he really turned his focus to politics full time. Can you tell us about that move and where his political allegiances lay? Yeah, for sure. He'd always been a political animal. His best biographer, the historian Roy Muir, has made the point that the two were always intertwined for Wellington. He's elected to the Irish Parliament in 1789. He was just 20 at that point. So you can see that in the really early stages of his career, he'd only been in the army for two years at this point, he was thinking in terms of political manoeuvring. He became an MP in the UK Parliament in 1806. But as you can imagine, that long period away all means that he can't be politically that active because he's not there. He can't contribute in the debates. It doesn't mean he doesn't lobby and write to the British Parliament, that he doesn't represent the British government. He absolutely does, particularly during the negotiations. So, for example, at the Congress of Vienna, Wellington is a key figure in the peace settlement that follows the Napoleonic Wars and the, the machinations and the, the, the backroom deals that are made. But in terms of being active in domestic politics, it's only when he goes back to the UK that he begins to pick that back up. He becomes Master General of Ordnance in the government of Lord Liverpool in 1818. And Board of Ordnance is a particular position to do with kind of military affairs. But it's partly, I think, about Liverpool embracing the sort of shiny bauble, the medallion that was Wellington and his international reputation at this point in time. In terms of his political allegiances, He's a dyed-in-the-wool Tory through and through. This is the era before the Conservative Party emerges, but the Tories are what go on to become the Conservatives, actually in part as a result of Wellington's time as their leader. He's the contemporary of Robert Peel, who's most famous perhaps for creating the police force, something that he actually does over the course of Wellington's tenure as Prime Minister. And they are a dynamic, really powerful combination Wellington initially gets favoured in terms of leadership potential because of that international reputation. It's the obvious choice in many respects, but it's questionable really whether he was somebody who had the right mindset to be PM, because he is said to have remarked after his first cabinet meeting how odd it was that he'd given the orders and then everyone seemed to want to discuss them. So as you mentioned there, Wellington did, of course, serve as prime minister between 1828 and 1830. And then he also served again very briefly as an interim leader in 1834. What did he achieve in those terms? Yeah, the analogy that I use for Wellington's career as a prime minister is kind of the, the final season of Game of Thrones. And I won't spoil anything for listeners who haven't caught up, but I think it's universally accepted both of Wellington's career and of the final season of Thrones, that there are moments of brilliance combined with a lot of sort of holding your head in the hands and screwing, what the hell were you thinking? Wellington has a bit of a, a challenge logistically as PM because he's a lord. 
which means he has to sit in the House of Lords. He can't sit in the Commons. And so he has to work very closely with Peel, who becomes leader of the Commons. So Peel is responsible for getting bills through the Commons, and then Wellington is the one who gets them through the Lords. But Wellington is the one who sets the agenda as the leader of the Tories, as they are back then, and as Prime Minister as a whole. It's worth saying that he did make a sacrifice in terms of his professional career in order to take that step to become Prime Minister. He had to step down as Commander-in-Chief of the Army, which was a position he'd been appointed to uh, a few years before. He had to make a choice because you couldn't have somebody leading the country who also had the undivided loyalty of the Army. That was far too problematic, particularly going back to what I said earlier about civil war and concerns about these kinds of things. Catholic emancipation is his great success story. The Catholics faced a huge amount of prejudice during this period, kind of concerns about a resurgency of papism and fears about what would happen if you put Catholics in significant positions of authority within government. So you couldn't serve, in theory, in the government if you were Catholic. You also couldn't serve in the army if you were openly Catholic. Now, there were workarounds and people did turn a lot of blind eyes to this kind of thing. But it's only in 1811 that the Catholics were allowed to openly worship in the army. So before that point, they either had to do it secretly or not go and pray. So you can see the sort of the stigma that was attached to them and the, the, the prejudice that was heaped at their door. So the Catholic Emancipation Act was a response to an individual being elected to sit in Parliament who was also a Catholic. And this was a, a really kind of major constitutional crisis. You know, what is the UK government going to do about this? Because this is a democratically elected individual in as far as democracy existed in Britain during this time, which is a thing that we'll talk about in a moment. And they have to find a solution. And Wellington is heavily involved in the drafting of the legislation. If you look at Wellington's papers in Southampton Uni's Hartley Library, you can see that Peel and Wellington have this kind of symbiotic relationship where Peel will write sort of a series of draft provisions and articles, and then Wellington will come along in a very Wellingtonian fashion and sort of scribble out paragraphs and, no, we're not saying that, and we're going to put this in here instead. You get a really good sense of how Wellington worked at a kind of cognitive level by just looking at these papers. And he has to threaten to resign to force the king into giving approval to this bill because the king has a crisis of confidence here because he thinks, well, I'm the defender of the faith. I'm the defender of Protestantism within the UK. I, I can't agree to this. And Wellington basically turns around and says, well, you either sign it or I go and you deal with the consequences. And so the king kind of reluctantly signs it into law, which points to both his principles and his pragmatism. You know, this is something that has passed the Commons and the Lords. Parliament's given it its approval. It's necessary for the will of the country. So you've got to sign it, Your Majesty. And you might be the king and I might be devoted to you, but you're going to do what needs to be done here. And it shows his awareness of his own worth, in a, in a sense, as well, in being willing to make that threat and knowing that actually the king's going to cave at that point. But there is a huge problem for Wellington that I touched on at the top of this show, his opposition to electoral reform. In the UK during this point, you have what is known as the rotten borough system. So you have some boroughs like Westminster that have 12,000 people in them who elect two MPs. You also have some boroughs that have 10 or 12 people who can vote in them who also elect 
two MPs. And that's 10 to 12 people, not 10 to 12,000 people, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And, And you've got to bear in mind that there might be 10 to 12 humans who are allowed to vote, but that's not reflective of population. That's reflective of the, the nature of the franchise during this point. And he fights against the expansion of the franchise. It fights against suffrage for people because at the moment that Wellington is making these arguments, everything is based around wealth. If you earn a certain amount in a year, you have the power to vote. And if you don't, well, that's just tough luck on you. And Wellington's government falls when he refuses to consider any reforms and ultimately loses a vote of no confidence. I can understand where Wellington comes from with this because he's seen what mob rule in the form of the French Revolution can do to a country in the way in which it can cause huge instability and tear the country apart. But eventually reform is achieved. It's not until June 1832 that that happens, partly because Wellington and the Tories fight really hard and successfully block two attempts to get reform through Parliament. So even when he's been shown the door, he doesn't let this go. And I don't think he's ever reconciled to this idea of the expansion of the franchise. It's said that uh, when he saw the uh, Commons sit for the first time after an election as a result of this reform bill, he commented that he'd never seen so many bad hats. So we've got some ticks on his record there as Prime Minister and some definite crosses. He was known in this later period as the Iron Duke. Can you tell us about how he got that nickname? Yeah, a lot of people get this one wrong. It's actually a very simple reference to the fact that iron shutters were installed on his London residence, Apsley House, in June 1832 because of ongoing periods of insurrection caused by his ongoing opposition to this reform. And so his house actually became a target. There are some quite dangerous moments where mobs are sort of forming outside of his house. And one of the the, the people in, in Wellington's sort of household is basically sort of stood on the roof of Apsley House with a blunderbuss in hand, kind of wondering what he's going to have to do to try and defend the family because people are hurling stones and all the rest of it at the windows. And so whilst a lot of people think that it's due to his nature or due to his military success or due to his political views, actually, it's quite simply a sort of sarcastic nickname that, look, he's gone and installed iron shutters rather than dealing with the actual problem, which is listening to the people. It's not the only misconception that people have about things that Wellington is attributed to. There's also a very famous comment that being born in a stable doesn't make a man a horse which is attributed to Wellington completely incorrectly. It's actually said about him by Daniel O'Connell, the same guy who instigates the Catholic emancipation debacle. Mm. And before we finish up with Wellington's later years and his death, I want to put one more myth, or perhaps not, to you, which is that Wellington was somehow involved with the creation of the Wellington boot, or perhaps even invented it. Is there any truth in that? There is. It's one of the little-known facts about Wellington that he was quite the fashionista of his day. And in fact, the officers in the British Army gave him the nickname The Bow because he was one who was really into kind of cultivating his own style. In, in battle, he didn't wear the kind of traditional red uniform that you kind of associate with this period of the, the British Army. Instead, he'd kind of go for something very understated, a kind of blue frock coat, a cloak, but he did like his calves. And so the idea behind the Wellington boot was that rather than having a very long 
leg on the boot. He cut the length of it down in order to show off his calves. Now, I'm not sure that he had a particularly strong game when it came to his calves. There are some people who could really pull this kind of thing off. Wellington seemed to think that he was one of those people. I think the jury is probably out on that one. But the type of boots that he wore are obviously very different from the modern welly. But if you've ever wondered where the name came from, there's your answer. Fantastic. And so, Zach, can you take us to the end of Wellington's life? Tell us about his later years after politics and how he died. Yeah, so he was still a a major figure in international diplomacy. You mentioned the fact that he's very briefly prime minister. That's basically a caretaker role because he's asked in 1834 if he can form a ministry and ultimately he doesn't think he's the right man to do it. I think by that point, he's sort of accepting the fact that his views on things like franchise don't chime with what the rest of the country wants, and so he's not the best person to lead the country forward. So although he's nominally PM, it's just because Peel is overseas. I believe Peel's in Italy, and so it just takes time for Peel to come back to fulfil that duty. He serves as Foreign Secretary under Peel from 1834 to 5. He was then Minister Without Portfolio and Head of the House of Lords in 1841 to 46, and it's in 46 that he retires from politics. But he's still a hugely important figure in international diplomacy. In some respects, he's one of the great fixers of his age. He's sent on diplomatic missions to Russia. At one point, he's sent to retrieve compromising love letters from a close friend, which would have caused a scandal for the British government. So he's one of these people who's really kind of dabbling in dark, underhand things and sent off on missions that he would absolutely have considered to be a complete waste of time if he didn't have that innate sense of duty to queen and country, as it would have been at this point, because, of course, Victoria's on the throne. He served as commander-in-chief from 1842, when Lord Hill had resigned. But to be honest, Wellington was always the de facto commander-in-chief of the army anyway. Hill was his man through and through. So he doesn't disappear from public life, even when he sort of steps back from politics. He is widely regarded as one of the great statesmen of his age. Queen Victoria is absolutely bereft when he dies in September 1852 at Walmer Castle. That's the result of having had multiple strokes. And he's given a state funeral in London, which he didn't actually want. His wishes were were overturned. He wanted to be buried at Walmer. That was decided to be unfitting. And so he's now in St Paul's opposite Nelson. And you can see the sort of the competition that's going on between the two men, even in death, over who's got the more impressive tomb. And I have to say, from an aesthetic point of view, Nelson wins. <laughs> Very good. And finally, Zach, how do you think that we should remember Wellington today? Wellington was quite simply Britain's greatest soldier and one of its worst prime ministers. He was a devoted servant of the nation and the monarchy, an exceptional general who is only less well known because the era was dominated by Napoleon. He could be cutting and waspish. And he personified some of the worst elitist privileged prejudices of the age in which he lived. Yet he was also highly intelligent and skilled and a generous individual. He is one of the most important figures in the history of Britain and of Europe. His role in the liberation of Europe from French domination was important, but it's his input in the peace negotiations that followed that was integral to establishing stability on the continent after a quarter of a decade of turmoil and war. That was Dr Zach White speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Zach is a historian at the University of Portsmouth 
and the host of the Napoleonic Wars podcast. Thanks for listening to today's Life of the Week. Be sure to join us again next time to learn about another fascinating figure from the past. Thank you.